When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, stranger. The Opus is moving out and into a new season as we continue to explore the ongoing legacy of music's most iconic records. I'm your host, Adam Unz, and this season we're celebrating the 45th anniversary of Billy Joel's fifth studio album, The Stranger, a record whose critical and commercial success catapulted the piano man to superstardom. Helping us explore this classic collection are artists like Billy Joel's drummer Liberty DeVito, Regina Spector, Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, Rozzy, Lissy, The Arkells, Bayside's Anthony Renari, and Ben Folds. Great music shapes lives, shakes rafters, and embeds itself into our culture. So let's find out why only the good die young as we deep dive into The Stranger. The new season is out now and is brought to you by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sony Legacy Recordings. Find us at consequence.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks so much for joining me. Coming up on today's episode, you'll hear my chat with Asher Levin, the founder of Loud Media Entertainment and showrunner of two Snap original series, Players and Save Me. More on that later. We spoke about Asher's love for filmmakers John Hughes and David Fincher, as well as hip-hop legend Kanye West, who I've talked about before on this podcast. But this is a new, fresh perspective, guys. And who doesn't love a fresh perspective? It's a densely packed Show. We've got a lot of ground to cover and we are going to motherfucking cover it, okay? Asher and I did nice little career retrospectives for each of those artists, and they're all people who have been a big part of my life, too. Each of the major artworks in those little retrospectives have very specific memories for me. I know I've talked before about the connection between artworks and specific memories in our lives, but there are artists who have been such a constant for me that their entire careers act as memory triggers for specific moments throughout my life. A good example is someone like Mary J. Blige, who I fucking love, obviously. I can remember driving to school, listening to Real Love when it was first released as a single. Oh my god, I'm old. And I can remember all these details that I might not remember as clearly otherwise. I can remember how sunny it was. I remember driving around with the windows open and singing along to the radio with my dad. And then I can remember when her second album came out, My Life, and talking to my then-girlfriend about how disappointed I was with it on the first listen. Clearly, I was an idiot because that's maybe her best album ever. Anyway, some of these memories relate to bigger events. I remember seeing the video for Family Affair for the first time in my sister's living room in Reading in England. And I remember that it was just before Aaliyah died and just before 9-11. But no matter how huge or how relatively insignificant these little pinpoints on Mary J's musical roadmap are, the memories I associated with each of her works are clearer to me because they're connected to the music. I don't know if everyone's memory works this way, and I know for sure that I have a knack for remembering lots of small details that other people have forgotten, but I know that the little details in my life would be a lot foggier without those artistic touchstones. And that's a real gift. 
Art allows me to see my own history with a clarity and specificity that might otherwise be absent. I might still remember all of that stuff without the musical cues, but I'm glad they're linked in my mind. It makes me feel closer to both the finer details in my life and the artists and artworks who mean the most to me. There, all done. Now let's get on with it, folks. Here comes my chat with Asher Levin about John Hughes, David Fincher, and Kanye West. Well, why don't we start off with the film portion of the evening? Uh, in particular, uh, let's start off with John Hughes. The The normal way I dig into things is just uh, to find out where you first remember hearing of the people you want to talk about. And with uh, varying degrees of success in that respect, I think the more established the person is and the longer they've been around, the harder it is to kind of remember or pinpoint an exact moment. But do you have that for uh, John Hughes? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I thought of these, these names we talked about as sort of like selfishly influential. And then also, I just honestly feel like they're super influential for the last three decades. With regards to John Hughes, and obviously looking at it since the 80s, I, I think that there's like a, almost like a before and after with him mm-hmm. in terms of like of anything that has to do with teen cinema and teen television. For me, as I guess I'm 40. The first time I remember John Hughes, I didn't even know that it was a John Hughes project. And it was when I, was, I saw Vacation. And I was like four years old. Right. So that was sort of informative. Still one of my favorite movies. It's amazing. If you rewatch it, just how timely, like it still really holds up. And the comedy still really there. Obviously, it's definitely not in tune with some of the cancel culture stuff today. But I think that there's some really genuine stuff that anyone can relate to that's in a family, that's been on a trip, that's young, that's old, all that fun stuff. As far as really learning about John Hughes, I mean, it's so hard. One of the things that's a cool trick about John Hughes specifically is that he is a very specific filmmaker, but he's a specific filmmaker that you don't, you sort of don't know you're watching until someone tells you that you're watching him. And I think that's one of the most uh, influential and important things about him. Everyone remembers his movies, and then at some point they understand that all, the same person is making all the movies, sort of like a musician in that way. And a lot of the stuff that he did early on, you know, they were named after songs. He's very influenced by music. But I think in the way that when you're a teenager as a big fan of music, you stumble onto a song and you start looking up that musician or you listen to a hip hop track and there's some sort of sample in it. And then you want to listen to the sample and the sample gets you into the artist and the artist gets you into the type of music. I feel like John Hughes is a real gateway like that. So for me, I would say, I would start with the fact that I love vacation, and then I would go to the fact that when I started getting a little older, Ferris Bueller was then my next favorite thing. And then after that, you know, then I started watching some of the other movies that, that John did, from Pretty in Pink, some kind of wonderful, you know, Uncle Buck. Then it just started going down the line. I think Breakfast Club was something I watched a little later. As I got older, it made more sense to me. And then even something like Home Alone is a project that, like, if, if you ask someone is that a John Hughes movie? I think the people who are fans of like Ferris Bueller and Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink, they probably wouldn't know. They'd probably be, oh shit, John Hughes did that too? And realized that that was one of his movies. So what's really cool about his career is it was short. You know, he sort of retired early and, uh, and then passed away really early. And that bottle of 80 to 92, 93, there's so much stuff that came out of it. And then there's so much, there's such a tree afterwards from it. You know what I mean? Right. The tree, the tree of, of it being 
going from Chris Columbus and then all the work that he did and then all the people that were just influenced massively by him. Right. Yeah. So I think for me, when he started getting recognition, when movies like Juno and some of these other projects, you know, started really saying that they were heavily influenced and then got nominated for Academy Awards and all these great honors that John never got nominated for. I think that was some really fun vindication for everyone who had been a huge John Hughes fan as teenagers grew up with him. There's also so many movies around John Hughes movies and TV shows that feel like John Hughes adjacent. Obviously, Cameron Crowe's early movies, which are their own conversations. And like if Cameron had made a few more movies that if he was if he was still at the Jerry Maguire phase, I probably would say like Cameron over John Hughes to me personally, because just down the list and I know I'm veering off of John, but I feel like they're kind of cousins. From Fast Times to Say Anything to Singles are like the probably the three most informative movies of my life. I think that that what John did on a much wider, much larger canon scale of pop culture, I feel like some of the shading that that Cameron did almost made John's uh, movies more important after everything. My long-winded answer, I'm sorry, I'm a writer, <laughs> but sometimes someone will ask me something and then I'll answer like 35 questions around it. Um, but yeah, I guess vacation was the answer, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's uh, good to have a strong overview to start off with. So um, that, yeah. was, that was good. I, I think uh, just the stuff that you were saying about the broad appeal of his movies and the wide reach of his influence, you know, I think that there are periods in, in the way that any artist, you know, can have a, a period where they're working on specific yeah, things. That totally. There's that chunk in the middle that's like, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, Ferris yeah. Bueller's Pretty in Pink, some kind of wonderful, I guess, to some degree, weird science, but that's a little kind of different. Um, but that- Weird science, masterpiece, and, and yeah. was one of the first movies he ever did. So I think that I would actually say that Weird Science is probably sort of at the top of that list. And, and the mix of comedy and, and horror, the meta horror thing that he did, like other than John Landis at the time, like he was doing it better than anyone in that movie. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of makes it an anomaly um, in, in the respect of yeah. those kind of teen movies is that the other ones were much more like Birds of a Feather. They all have that kind of, I, I guess, ex- excluding Ferris Bueller's, too. That's a little bit different. But those other ones that are kind of like teen rom-coms almost, but they, they did have a different sensibility. And that set off a really specific kind of teen focused entertainment. And then you have other stuff that's, you know, the uh, kind of one-off, uh, really, they stand on their own, don't really fit in in terms of genre with the other stuff that he did, like Weird Science or Ferris Bueller, that are really these original standout things. And well, I then, think it's really important, really important to know something there. The movies that you named that were standouts are the movies that he directed, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at Breakfast Club, Weird Science, and Ferris, Right. Those are four movies. And Uncle Buck. Those are all movies that he did. Those are his movies. Right. That he did not throw off to Howard Deutsch. He did not give to Chris Columbus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Those are all movies that, and, and I think when you watch those movies specifically, there is a lot more filmmaker sort of centric moments in those films. They are unique. Like you said, they have a lot of different themes going on in them. And although they may have some of the elements, I think as a producer and a writer, John had a good sense to understand I'm not the guy who does rom-coms. That's yeah. not me. I write the script. I like, I like the project, but I don't like them enough that I'm going to sit and live with them for six months. 
like I'm going to go, like I'm going to go and write this thing. I'm going to give someone the, the ability to go make it. I'm going to give my meaningful notes and be an onset producer. But when it comes to making movies, I want to make movies that stand alone, that are their own thing. And I think the only one that, that actually he, that, that he didn't direct, but feels like it is home alone in terms of the fact that there's a, it is a very specific and very iconic film. I, I think that when you're right, when you're talking about Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful. Oh, Planes, Trains is the other one that he directed. So yeah. if you think about movies that he directed versus the movies that he just wrote, I think it's actually really, really interesting because the, I know this is super boring for everybody listening, but I just want to go through this really quickly because I think it's super interesting. So after the Lampoon movies, because I think everything before that, it's, it's a little different. The Lampoon stuff is very specific and has a lot of the Reitman Ramis sort of imprints on it. Mm-hmm. But once you get to like the King Candles, which is the one we left out actually, which is a movie he directed, 16 Handles and The Breakfast Club and Weird Science, they all feel the same, right? They're all, and, and Ferris, they're all, they have a really sort of irreverent and kind of chaotic punk rock vibe to the filmmaking of it. Mm-hmm. They feel like anything goes in those movies and there's a real independent spirit. If you look at something like Pretty in Pink or Some Kind of Wonderful or She's Having a Baby, these are all movies that feel like studio movies. Yeah. They're real studio movies, right? So when, I think that there's a variable that's really cool to look at with his movies that there are, that he made this very iconic brand and then he kind of allowed that brand to do the things that made him a lot of money. And then he took big swings. Most of them really paid off, but they were definitely, each one was a different genre. It was like, I'm making my, my science fiction, you know, my weird science movie, my horror movie. I'm making my, you know, kind of buddy movie. I'm making a movie about, you know, a John Candy movie. I mean, they're all sort of like very specific movies that exist outside of it being a teen rom-com. Right. But also I think each one of those examples provided a template that has produced so many other movies and also his child-friendly period towards the uh, later, yeah. later part oh, of his career. Yeah. All yeah, of those yeah. movies, like the, you, the hundreds and hundreds of projects that have been, you can link directly <laughs> to his work. Um, it's, it's, I'm looking at him right now and I'm forgetting that like he wrote Flubber and that he wrote like <laughs> yeah. Dennis and Bennett and Dutch and, and they're all, these are all movies that you can like track 15 movies and television shows that are just like, Hey, we're going to do it. And it's kind of like playing and automobiles. They're like, this is like a movie that's kind of like uncle buck. You know, it's like every, I'm sure that there have been countless pitches that have been sold in the room, me included saying like using a John Hughes movie as a reference yeah, or John Hughes character as a reference. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You you remember feeling like you are, you, you got to a stage where you understood that all of these projects were connected to one person and and you understood the kind of reach of his influence or did that, was that kind of a a process over time that, you know, uh, as you became more involved in producing entertainment yourself, that it's like, you know, he's, he's pretty inescapable. I've been a film geek since I was a kid. So I, I think I was really into the obvious filmmakers first. No disrespect to the obvious filmmakers, but, you know, you learn about people like Scorsese and Orson Welles and Kubrick before anyone else when you're like, if you're really into shit, when you're or Spielberg, when you're like, Kent, right? right? Those are like the people that you like know that you start learning about first because they're like, you know, top 40. I think John Hughes is someone that at the time when it was like 1990, I don't consider him a top 40 filmmaker back then. I think he, in terms of like music terms, I consider him as someone that people kind of discounted, but like the real hardcore fans knew that he was operating on a really high level, like artistically. So 
I, I think when I got to be 11 or 12 years old is when, and even then, I was like a grunge kid. I thought that John Hughes was like kind of a fucking sellout. I didn't really think he was like, I thought he was super <laughs> pop. And I always veered towards Cameron Crowe. And I was like, it's a standard. I, you know, I would, I would go and listen to Mud Honey instead of Nirvana and stuff like that. So like, I was always trying to find like the alternative. I think when I got to be about 15, 16 years old, I really understood that like he was just kind of at a different level than some of these other people. Yeah. And, and as I got older and obviously when I went to film school and then afterwards and all that other stuff, then I really started understanding. Ferris is a really good example of that when you watch the compositions in that movie as a filmmaker. And there's a lot of different scenes from that movie, but specifically everyone always talks about the scene in the museum, obviously the, the incredible staging of the parade. I mean, mm-hmm. these are things like master filmmaking shit really really strong and iconic and of course and it's been copied a million times the end section when he's running back home the dad is on his way i mean the masterful filmmaking of that i think that when when we when you start looking back now and really seriously consider it i know this is like an insane thing to say i think over the same time period it's really hard to discern who is more influential in a grand scheme of things spielberg or hughes they both have a massive massive imprint on modern pop culture and 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 pop cinema and I think that some of the, the, and the way that put together compositions and blocking is just as intricate. It's just not as showy. Yeah. And I would also uh, say John Hughes movies, the best of them, there is some real subversive shit in there. And with Spielberg oh, yeah. movies, it tends to be quite earnest. Um, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, I think it's, it's just a different kinds of filmmaking and different kinds of influence. But I always felt... Like the John Hughes movies that I love the most have a, a little bit of an edge to them. And, you, you know, especially like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I think is a perfect example that it's so many movies in one movie. And yeah, yeah. really a true original. I don't think anything well, has been made like love, that since. I think the thing that I really loved about that movie, I remember I was doing some working on a script and really looking at it, that someone told me, I think I was working with an executive, a very smart executive. We're talking about why... Ferris is such a cool and iconic movie. And he said, um, oh, because Cameron's the lead in the movie. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, I'll think about it. Ferris never changes. And he's really just a cipher for Cameron's development as the lead character. Mm. In fact, Ferris is almost an antagonist, if you actually look at it in film terms. Yeah. He's the one that's exciting. And the camera's the one that is, is going through the, the, the journey, the hero's journey. But by the end of the movie, Cameron does something heroic. And Ferris is not. Ferris just wants to have a good time. Yeah. Um, so so uh, just in the interest of time, I'm just uh, watching the clock here. Yeah. But um, well, uh, an, another filmmaker who is equally influential, uh, has a very distinctive style, but definitely on uh, uh, a different side of the spectrum, David Fincher. Yeah. Same, same deal. Like, do you remember becoming aware of his work? Do you, I like, actually do. Yeah, I do. That was easier for me because David really didn't start doing stuff until the mid nineties. And I was into music and into mm-hmm. directing. So, um, with Fincher, saw the Madonna videos. I started getting turned on to the nine inch nails videos that he was doing that were Mark Romanek's videos, very disturbing video where Trent's like getting sort of uh, dissected. Yeah. Um, I don't even know on YouTube anymore. Do you remember that video? Yeah. Yeah. And then I remember so well when seven came out. And it was like fucking pipe bomb. You know, it was the same thing as Sixth Sense in terms of the react. Like, there was no internet yet, right? So you just kind of hear like, hey, there's this crazy movie that David Fincher met and made and the twist at the end is insane, right? And you go and you watch this movie and it was like, 
it was like a horror movie, but it wasn't a horror movie. And the opening with Trent's music and the, the diary and all that stuff. And just like, it's like a music video. And then you dive in and then it's like this crazy fever dream nightmare version of like a 1940s film noir. And just so well made. By watching today, you're like, this movie could come out tomorrow. And no one would think that it was from 1996 or whatever it is, right? And then after that, going and seeing the game and then everything after. I mean, the, the fact that he is still the same filmmaker so many years later and it's still contemporary even though he hasn't changed anything in his style he just updates basically he's like a he's like a uh, an app or something and it was hard for me i was thinking about soderbergh i was thinking about venture because i love both of them and i think soderbergh is so all over the place that it's really hard to really passionately say like soderbergh is the best you know like i love that he's experimental but i think that some of the stuff he does doesn't really resonate and it's super cold venture even though it seems like he would be a cold filmmaker, he's actually like very empathetic and understands how to get emotions out of people watching his movies. He understands how to create full characters, which I think Soderbergh is like, it's, that's like a, he bats like 30% with that. So Soderbergh, I think, can be very hit or miss. He's a little, you know, it's a it's a positive and a negative. He's not afraid to experiment with stuff and just do things that are like, you know, oh, I have a uh, hundred dollars that I'm going to use to make this next movie. Exactly. And it's, you know, just see how it goes. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So he does end up making stuff. Inspiring like as shitty. a filmmaker. Yeah. It, as a filmmaker, it's inspiring. It's inspiring in the same way that people used to talk about Cassavetes in the seventies in terms of like, that guy's an independent filmmaker. Right. And then when he wants to go make a studio movie, he can make Ocean's Eleven. He can make Traffic. He can make Aaron Brockovich. He can make a ton of money, but he doesn't like to be the best that often. And most of the time he wants to fuck off and do weird things. Right. Yeah. And like, that's his prerogative. And I'm glad that he does it because everybody rips off afterwards, but the actual content, like not that great. Whereas Finch, I don't think I've ever, I was looking back. I mean, I guess Benjamin Button, but I don't mm-hmm. think there's ever been a movie that I could think of that. I'm not like that movie is amazing. I'll watch it again. Um, but, uh, also talking again about the, uh, music videos, I think as a, as a start to a career, even ev- anyone who was paying attention to his work, he was really prolific making all of these music videos. And you could yeah. see that he had this kind of cinematic aesthetic, um, especially in the, yeah. you know, the bigger budget things, the stuff he, he made for Madonna, as you said. Express um, yourself specifically is, is obviously like the, the ultimate example of, of his sort of like what he could become as a cinematic filmmaker. Right. And Vogue as well. Um, and then, yeah. you know, stuff like Free- Freedom 90 for George Michael, where it's this, uh, it's cinematic. It's like fashion. There's this kind of Herb Ritz uh, feeling yeah. to it. And yeah, but it's, it's highly stylized. And all of it was just playing around, building an idea of the kind of filmmaker that he wanted to be. And um, when you look back at that work, you can see the seeds of, of the films that he was going to make later on. I think that's, some, that's something that, that people don't talk about a lot with, with Fincher is two things. It's actually two things. One is how sexy of a filmmaker he is because he's, he's not overtly sexy. He's not Adrian Lyon. He doesn't have a tons of nude scenes, erotic sex scenes, whatever. I mean, there's, there's some scenes in some movies, but they're all done sort of in a Hitchcockian way, you know, to, to service a plot, but he's sexy. Every frame is sexy and mm-hmm. freedom is a really good example of that. And the Madonna stuff is a really good example of understanding 
how to be an erotic filmmaker without actually doing anything erotic in the film, right? So I think that's something really cool and seductive about him. The other part is he's really playful, like you just said. He's a playful, funny filmmaker that people don't really think about that way, and they don't think about some of his movies that are obviously satire. So, you know, if you compare him to someone like Sam Ishmael, who's like a TV counterpart, that guy is earnest. He is not funny. Like, his stuff is, has the same sort of tension, but he doesn't have the type of characters like Sean Penn in the game, like running around being insane, right? Yeah, so, also just comparing uh, the two of them, I think another thing that is is lacking in a lot of Sam Esmail's work is the the sexual frisson that you were talking about, that there's like, yeah. in, in David Fincher's work, even in the stuff that he makes about serial killers, all, all of those films that you, you listed, you know, um, Seven and... Uh, Zodiac, Mindhunter as well. The way, the framing, the lighting, the, the yes. costumes. There, even yeah. when there's no sex at all in the episode, there's this tension, and it's just something that kind of hangs in the air. And he's just, it's, it's really masterful. There's, there's something there that it's, it's so compelling. Yeah. Well, he's, you know, he obviously after after four decades, five decades, six, that's probably working in marketing and advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, he understands that. I, I, I think that Ridley Scott is another really good example of someone that understands that just because of the way that they do things and the fact that at all times they need to pitch sexy to brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that David, it, it's really the playful nature of it that's a little different than Ridley or Tony, you know, what the Scott brothers used to have, that he really understands how to use it in a way that probably other than Hitchcock, I, I've never seen anyone. The other thing that, that, that people don't think about a lot with Fincher, which is crazy, is that he's actually like a director for actors. And that's mm. something that is, is really overlooked. I remember hearing a podcast once where there, someone with Mark Ruffalo was talking about how, how in uh, Zodiac they would just do like, he, you know, he obviously does legendary amount of takes, known for doing like 100 takes of something so the visuals look right. But he's saying that, that almost entirely shoots in two shots and mediums and masters. And then reframes, and he's like, it was it's the closest that he had ever been to being, in, uh, you know, on on stage. And right. so, the tweak performance stuff. He's not, he doesn't really give a ton of notes. He kind of guides, but he, it, you watch his movies, and he understands how to select. Like he's selecting best performances. I've never seen a Fincher movie where a performance took me out of the movie. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Again. In uh, yeah. the interest of yeah. keeping things yeah. wanna, moving go smoothly to my, along, my, my number three on here. Yes, uh, we should talk about a little music. I think so. Yeah. Uh, Kanye again. You, you know, I mean, I, I uh, this is another person who came into prominence when I'm I'm sure you were an adult and uh, a bit more yeah. Yeah. cognizant of yeah. popular culture and stuff. So, do do you remember being turned on to him? I have a really funny story about Kanye West. So maybe this is self, <laughs> but it's on there because I knew I had the story. So I was, uh, I was actually in a band, I was always in the band, but I was actually on a, uh, a singer in a band on Atlantic Records that we just never ended up blowing up or anything, but for um, about five, four years uh, from the, I left film school, made this little movie, uh, we did the soundtrack, me and my producing partner, and then we got signed, and then I took four years off of doing anything in film and television, and I was like a rock band. And we were in Atlantic, and our A&R also represented this band called the Nappy Roots. I don't know if you remember them. Yeah, yeah. And I was, uh, they liked me to sing hooks on rap songs at the time. So <clears throat> I was in the studio with Nappy and uh, like a little white Jewish kid. And, um, and he was producing the song. 
right? So, hey man, he still had his uh, mouth shit from the accident. It was before he released the first album. And he played through the wire to us. I never, it was crazy. I never heard anything like it before, right? And I didn't know who this guy was other than the fact that he was like Jay-Z's producer. That's all I knew about him. And that he had done the Big Nappy Roots single. And I kept being like, oh yeah, that's awesome. That like, yeah, he's like, cool, man. Yeah, like what are we eating over here? I'm like, I don't know, man. What are we eating, right? Because I was the only white guy in there other than his A&R, he thought that I was the guy who was ordering food. <laughs> they asked like four times and finally I looked at him and was like, oh shit, you think that I'm the assistant to the engineer, don't you? And he goes, oh yeah. I'm like, no man, I'm singing the fucking hook. He's like, oh shit, sorry, sorry. And like, it, I never talked to him again, but like, it was, just, it was really funny because he, I didn't know why he was asking me. I was like, so, I was so clueless, right? Um, <laughs> and I, and he had walked in after I had recorded. So he, he, I was just some dude sitting in there, right? right? But as far as that's just my personal story, like, I think the first time I, I, other than through the wire, I think the first time I really got into Kanye was probably on the second album. I, the first album I, I wasn't as like connected to. Which one is the one that John Bryan produced? At the time, I was like a massive John Bryan fan. I loved the stuff he did with Fiona Apple. Obviously, loved the soundtrack to Huckabees, and he had done a couple of other really cool movies. And I saw him at Largo a couple times. So, John, before Largo moved to its new place in Los Angeles on La Cienega, when it got a lot more money, it was in this dive. It was this dive theater, like cabaret theater on Fairfax Boulevard, where all skateboarders are now. And you'd have to order dinner over there. And so you'd order dinner on a Friday, you'd sit down, and John would perform in the dark. It was like very dark. Loved all this stuff sonically. And I remember hearing that Kanye was going to do the album with him, like the whole album. So I heard that. I think I, that was when I, that to me, was like the turning point. It was like that album was so different than all the other rap albums were coming out. And I think that that, to me, that was a separation. It was right around the same time that JP did the Black album. And there were like both of them. And I, I kind of felt like I really connected. And, and some of those songs in there are so much more emotional than anything I'd ever heard from rap before. And like Naked, Hey Mama specifically, like other than like some Tupac songs, I don't think I've ever heard anything like that. As, as far as just being so... Uh, emotionally bare. And then the Kanye thing for me is a little different. I don't think that he, I, I'm not like the hugest Kanye fan in the world. Um, I love some of his albums. I think some of them are really great, but I think his influence is just what I want to talk about as an artist. Because to me, he, other than obviously those artists, who knows what happens with Billie Eilish, something like that. But in the last 20 years, I, I don't, I can't place another another person who has been so consistently artistic and provocative and risky with all the moves that they've made in music. Obviously it's very documented with him and not even talking about any of the mental health stuff, just like just as a straight up artist. And I know they go hand in hand, but doing, for example, like I don't like uh, 808s. I, I, when I came out, I fucking hated it. But retrospectively, that album is, the most important album that in rap has been made in 15 years. The idea that he conceptually, because of, of, of the death you know, of his mother, that he decided he could not rap, he could not sing anymore, and he needed to be a robot, that's like, like Duchamp-level art. That is mm -hmm. so 
next level as an artist to just be like, I'm going to figure out this way to sing without singing and croon R&B songs for 10 tracks and, and have it be, and, and I don't care if I sound bad. It's like the most punk rock thing that anyone can do is know you're not a good singer, put yourself on auto-tune, make the, the, the beats behind you as a composer who can make incredibly elaborate and ambitious beats, make them really, really, really basic, essentially create like the Philip Glass version of a rap album. Right. And the best trick of it is everyone, because they love Kanye in the community, just started ripping him off afterwards. Like, oh shit, you could do that? And now you have, I think there's probably less rappers who rap like traditionally in hip hop, there are hard to just do what Kanye did with 808. Like yeah. if you think about all of the people that use autotune, all the people that sing off key, like passionately, like Post Malone, right? Like mm-hmm. Post Malone wouldn't have a career without 808 from Heartbreak. He wouldn't. Straight up. There would be nothing there for him. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't be able to tell his label, I can do this. Look, Kanye made like, uh, sold like 10 million copies of that album. Right? T-Pain, I mean, uh, that was the obvious one right afterwards. Uh, Migos, I mean, all, all the, you can go through, there's so many little piece, all these, like all the SoundCloud artists are directly, a gener- uh, like sort of genetically bonded from that album. There's nothing like that was ever made before that. We're talking about John Hughes before, and you know, not the teen cinema never looking the same again. I say 808, like music never sounded the same way sonically again when it comes yeah. to hip hop. Those, those two situations are pretty analogous because as with John Hughes, where the work that was spawned out of his influence and legacy was far inferior, I kind of feel the same way about yeah. uh, that, that particular part of Kanye's influence, that it's like all these people who the big lesson that they got out of it isn't like you need to innovate and everybody should be striving to push themselves to do the best work that they can, even if it's something that's outside of their comfort zone. It was just like, yeah. oh, shit, I don't have to be able to sing. I can just like, you know, throw some auto tune on it and it doesn't matter. And, um, you know, at least 808s, the, the like melody was considered. He was thinking about yeah. songwriting and um, with a lot of the albums that were influenced by it. It's just like yeah. melody is not a consideration whatsoever. <laughs> If you threadbare those songs, I've always wanted someone to do an R&B cover of that album mm. because, you know, Love Lockdown, for example, that's like a Marvin Gaye song. Right. Like if someone sang it correctly and composed it correctly, like that's like one of the best R&B songs of all time. Right. right. Graduation has so many anthems on it, but that's not the biggest influence of Graduation. And this is what makes Kanye an artist. Before Graduation, no one knew who uh, Murakami was. Mm-hmm. No one knew what Nico and, and Bape was. These are all things he introduced on graduation to the culture of America and the, and the world. Weird Japanese shit that he found. And he was like, I love this stuff and I'm going to make my album cover this and I'm going to dress like this and I'm going to tell everybody that this is what influenced me on this album. And today, kids, they don't realize the reason that they dress the way they dress and they buy the shit the way that they buy is because of graduation. That's yeah. incredible. Then you look at my beautiful twisted uh, nightmare, right? First time I heard Bonnie Vare, who is one of my favorite artists. First time I heard Nicki Minaj, right? He was releasing those albums once a week on Good Fridays on, on Twitter, like before they came out. No one had ever done that before. The thought of just releasing shit for free, like, hey, you could just collect all this stuff on my website if you don't want to download the album and go every week. I mean, that's, that's incredibly 
insightful. And talk about SoundCloud again, he basically created the model for SoundCloud with that, right? There are SoundCloud artists that release all their, their songs as singles and then finally put them on a compilation afterwards. And Kanye did that with Good Fridays. He gave an album to everybody for free if they were fans. That's another insane sort of story. And then after the stuff afterwards, although incredibly prosaic and, and up and down with his mental health, Jesus is like the best punk rock album of the last 15 years. Pablo, I know it's super flawed, but what I love about the life of Pablo is it's like an album he was like, I, you hear about people like David Lynch and when David Lynch makes a movie, he goes back and he like will go and, and like reshoot a, move, a, a scene a year and a half later because he likes the way that something pops in his head and he brings people out and, and that's why his movies kind of look weird. And he says, well, because I never learned about how to make a movie and I was a, you know, I was a painter before that and I thought to paint. Like that's a living painting of an album. The guy was taking songs off of iTunes, <laughs> redoing them and putting them back on. So there are people out there that have 35 different versions that they downloaded it illegally of these, you know, 20 tracks, right? Like that, that's really, really, really insane to think about the fact that he just decided I'm going to make an album that I can just change all the time because I have access to uploading. I'm uploading these songs myself. I have that experience as someone who ran a big digital media company where we uploaded stuff on YouTube. I just did it with my Snapchat shows where I was in charge with my partners of uploading the shows. It's a very sort of modern thing to be a creator that has the art, the, the ability to literally create art, post it, and within 30 seconds, millions of people will be able to access what you just posted yourself. Right, right. So Pablo to me, I think just from that level is, is fantastic. I obviously, I know this is going to be a shocker, Jesus King did not resonate for me as an album. I think I yeah. listened to it. And I was like, that's a really cool idea. But um, I mean, I think it will probably be uh, a legacy item of his for the faith-based community to be like, look, like this is like a, a mainstream album that a mainstream artist made that is completely faith-based. That is an achievement as an artist as well. Of saying this is my next chapter of my life. You know, I know Dylan did this in the early 80s too, but like it's provocative because it's so anti-provocative, right? So as a thinker, and obviously I've even talked about the fact that his clothing empire is insane and he went broke doing it and now it's worth like a hundred billion dollars. That's crazy insight. When you go, when you literally like, are like, I'm going to go $50 million in debt and then I'm going to make it all back. And like, basically like take, you know, convince your wife who's richer than you at the moment to help bankroll your dream fashion thing. Yeah. I, I just hope, I, you know, looking back through these album titles, thinking about the individual influence of each album, the collaborators that he found, he has he has such incredible taste in art in general across the spectrum. You know, like you said, fashion, fine art, music, all of these all of these other elements being pulled in to create his albums. And I worry that. Jesus is King is not a blip in the road and that this is the direction that he's heading in now. And I mean, I, you know, wor worry for my own selfish purposes that like, that's, that's never, not me look, either. Never I, I don't um, know. I mean, who the hell knows? Like we, you could have said that three years ago about something else he was doing. He's such a shape shifter. He may get bored of it in a year or he may have another mental breakdown and then be like, I fucking hate Christianity. 
you know, like I want to do this, you know, like this is, this is what's more important. I'm going to, now I'm going to be a cult leader. Now I'm going to, you know, (laughs) now I'm going to, you know, now I'm going to do a whole concept album about, you know, this. or now I'm going to run for president. Who the fuck knows? That's what makes him so fascinating as a, uh, as a creator. Yeah. A true creator. Let's uh, let's hope for everyone's sake that uh, he's going to keep pushing the culture forward and, and doing interesting stuff that everybody can appreciate. I have not lost all hope. Let's 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 yeah. say that. <laughs> um, so that uh, was a very comprehensive overview of the, some interesting, interesting topics. So I, I feel very satisfied. Uh, I hope I good? did. I hope did okay i don't know i don't normally do podcasts or anything so i hope i did all right you did that was great so if people want to uh keep up with what you've got going on next uh, yes. how would they do that well um i have two shows right now that are on snapchat originals i don't know how familiar anybody is with the platform but snapchat has original shows now the uh the first show is called players if you guys like basketball and you know, sexy teen stuff. We were talking about John Hughesy kind of stuff. Um, it's a really fun kind of nine oh two and oh uh meets the the O C kind of show about a uh uh like Bronny James type who transfers from Indiana to uh a, a fancy celebrity uh, Los Angeles school and has to compete for a spot on the team and gets in a whole bunch of trouble. Uh, that one's called Players. Uh, and then the other show is, as I mentioned before, this is my adventure side, is a cyber thriller called Save Me. It's about a uh, kid in an online homeschool class who has a crush on one of the girls in the class, and she FaceTimes him running away from something scary with a bloody lip and says, save me, and then she goes dark. And, uh, and the kid and his friends have to find her through online devices and whatnot. And as, uh, as they get deeper into the mystery, they kind of are able to get out of their shell of their uh, sort of screen life world into the reality of the missing girl. And uh, they uncover this sort of crazy kind of underground cult thing. Sweet. Those both uh, sound like uh, a little, a little something for everyone. <laughs> super fun. And then I'm working on a, uh, I'm in pre-production right now on a, a feature, uh, sort of a revisionist vampire kind of thing that I've been working on for a while that we've attached some really cool uh, names to. And that uh, will be the first time it's going to be directing a feature in about three years. So um, that's that. Look for, uh, watch the shows on Snapchat. Uh, go on Snapchat, search players, search Save Me. And uh, if you like it, uh, tweet at Snapchat afterwards. Uh, please reorder uh, either show that you like so that I can uh, do more episodes of both of them. Great. Uh, Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Yeah. uh, Had a great time. All right. Take care. Yep. Bye. That was great, right? Thanks again to Asher. Check out his Snap Originals, won't you please? Okay. Let's give you some recommendations, eh? The first one is super obvious. It's The Invisible Man, dudes. I'm sure you've all seen it because it's the number one movie in the galaxy or whatever, but it's They're really entertaining. It's produced by Blumhouse, who are known for pumping out a lot of lowest common denominator horror dreck, but this one is a cut above. Now, don't get too fucking excited. It's still dreck, but it's fun dreck, and there are some surprises, and Elizabeth Moss is great in it. 
You'll definitely have to do quite a bit of suspension of disbelief. There's some pretty preposterous stuff in there, but you'll also have a good time, and that's what really matters, right? Then, Moses Sumney recently released the first part of a double album called Grey, and it's crazy good. It's weird and genre-defying and beautiful. It sounds like... Prince and Kate Bush and an electronic squelch machine all made an album together. So if you like that description, you should check it out. And that is it, my friends. I have some potentially distressing news for you. There will be no new episode next week. Why, you ask? Because it's my birthday on Saturday and I don't want to work. Cool? Great. If you want to get me a little birthday present, you can... Follow me on social media at Spark Parade, rate and review the show, or throw a few bucks at me to cover my ever-mounting costs. You can do that at thesparkparade.com. Or you can just wish me a happy birthday on social media, too. Or just think happy birthday in your precious little head. Okay? That's truly it. I'll be back in two weeks. Be good. Until next time. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.